to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Of course, we check in with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk once again to catch up on all things COVID, which seems to keep airing its ugly head in variant ways. Also going to share some of my patient stories. And the sun is out, but so is your skin. Dr. Jason Rivers, dermatologist, shares his skincare secrets to save your skin and potentially your life. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, your host and a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor and sexual health educator. If you would like to be a part of this show, feel free to give me and my guests a call. The number to call is one 399 9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can also text me there as well. Or feel free to email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects on the program, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we are going to talk about some of my patients, actually. I'm going to uh, talk to you about some of the more common situations. Of course, uh, a few little details will be changed so that they will be anonymous. Also going to be talking about a very important mineral, Special K, and how that affects your health. And it is summertime, and I feel like this guest is a little bit too late, but it's never too late to protect your skin. Dr. Jason Rivers, a dermatologist, joins me tonight to talk about your skin and skin cancer and how he's going to save your skin and potentially your life. Also going to be talking about why it's okay for me to cheat, but it's not okay for you to cheat in some relationships, of course. The sexual double standards that exist in relationships today. And many, many people have difficulty sleeping. So I'm going to be talking about a non-medicinal sleep aid for you that has been proven effective. Lots to cover on the program tonight, but right now. And now Maureen's Health Headline. You've heard his voice before. He's the assistant professor of viral pathogenesis at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. He holds a Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. He is an associate professor of the Department of Biochem, College of Medicine and Allied Health Sciences at University of Sierra Leone. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you? I'm doing good, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Here we are one week later, and the New York Yankees-Boston Red Sox game got delayed due to COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, we're, we're not through with it yet, are we? It, uh, you know, it, it continues to kind of rear its, its ugly head, and, and certainly the dynamic of the pandemic is changing, but uh, yeah, we're, we're still in the thick of it. Uh, we, we certainly are still in the thick of it, and I believe that a lot of people do not believe that we are still in the thick of it. They think that it's over, and even when they hear that some of the Yankee players have contracted COVID, they still think, oh, you know, well, they're not that sick, or it's only delayed once. But is this becoming a new uh, pandemic, the pandemic of the unvaccinated? Yeah, I think certainly when, when you look at, at the dynamics right now of, of what we're seeing with COVID and certainly with, uh, with cases and hospitalizations, there is a distinct chasm 
that, that divides people that are vaccinated from those that are unvaccinated. And I think, you know, for us, it, it, we only need to look south of the border to places like Missouri and, and Louisiana to, to see, you know, states that, that are really being, um, you know, kind of pulled apart by this and, and, and really along that divide. So I think it, it's difficult because there, there, for many of us, there's this idea that the pandemic is, is done. We've gotten vaccinated. We're doing well. Transmission is down. Um, but we still have a highly susceptible population. And, you know, that's the problem for us is that once Delta starts moving through, we are going to see an uptick in hospitalizations. And, and certainly the rest of the world is showing us what we have to be somewhat prepared for. That's right. You mentioned Louisiana, and there was a very, very sad situation out, um, from out of Louisiana of a registered nurse who was 23 years old uh, who had tweeted that um, basically that, you know, the COVID wasn't real. I don't know if you had heard about her, yeah. but she, she was much loved by her colleagues. And um, she ended up on a vent in ICU, on a ventilator, um, in intensive care unit and uh, died after over the weekend. Um, her it's allegedly her parents are ill and her pregnant sister. They're very concerned about, um, you know, it's this information or misinformation that's getting out there how dangerous is this misinformation i mean obviously it was extremely dangerous and and god rest her soul and our hearts go out to her her family and her friends and her colleagues of of the nurse who uh did not believe in covid um and actually um olivia Guidry uh, is her name, Amy Olivia Guidry. She gradu- graduated from Louisiana State um, in the fall of 2019. It's not a lot of years to be a nurse, uh, but she was sharing this information. How, how dangerous is that, especially from a healthcare provider? It's extremely dangerous for us, right? I mean, I think the, the situation that we're in is there, there's certainly an aspect where we, we want to have lines of communication open, we want to be able to educate. Um, but we're also battling, uh, you know, misinformation and disinformation uh, in a medium that we can't necessarily, uh, you know, kind of meet the speed at which a lot of this, this information is being disseminated. So I think we're, we're unfortunately always behind the eight ball. And that makes it really difficult because, you know, by the time that we're addressing stories or you're addressing somebody's comments, that has now gone out to five or 10 or 100 other people. Um, and certainly, you know, a lot of this is about context and it's about nuance in, in regards to data that's being released or headlines. And that makes it so difficult for us. And at the root of all of this, the unfortunate reality is people are going to die. And that's the part that it, it keeps me up at night. It drives me nuts. I get angry. I get sad because of the fact that we have life-saving medications that, that people in other areas of the world that do not have access to these would you know do anything they could to get their hands on and we right now are 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 debating the merits of whether this virus is is even real it's it's it it takes hours and hours of people's time to try and and battle back against this misinformation and it's time that could be spent for us you know working on on therapeutics and working on understanding pathogenesis and all these other things it's it's frustrating i you know certainly i won't give up and my colleagues won't give up but, uh, man, it, it gets pretty tiring and pretty defeating. And, and it's so sad. And Olivia Guidry actually was uh, appeared to be criticizing the COVID-19 vaccines and, and basically, you know, saying in some of her tweets or, or repeating tweets, don't get it in terms of 
um, the vaccine. And, you know, a lot of people feel that the vaccine was created too quickly. Um, and in fact, I did see one of her tweets that said that as well. But a, a lot of people, you know, and speaking about um, a healthcare professional who is well-respected and has certainly been in his role for a long time uh, is Dr. Anthony Fauci. But a lot of people have lost trust in him. I, I was speaking to a patient uh, recently who said he was not going to be getting the vaccine. And it was in large part, his wife was saying, because he was a Canadian Trump supporter <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. she has autoimmune disease. She has gotten the vaccine. But his wife was saying she's a Canadian Trump support. He was a Canadian Trump supporter. And, and I said, you know, Trump got the vaccine. But his reasoning for not getting the vaccine was, and of course, this caused discord in the relationship, was because Anthony Fauci had lied. And he had lied about the masks. And he did not trust Anthony Fauci. What are yeah, your thoughts I mean, you on know, that? Well, I will give a quick, very uh, personal impression of, of, of Dr. Fauci because I used to see him on a, on a daily basis at NIH. When, when we were dealing with our, uh, one of our patients, our Ebola patients at, uh, at the NIH Clinical Center, uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Dan Churto, was the overseeing physician. Uh, Tony used to round on a daily basis, and this is the director of NIAD, who would go mm-hmm. in in basically all the PPE to, to basically see what was going on with the patient and provide care. Um, he didn't have to do that kind of stuff. Tony could have retired years ago, but mm-hmm. he dedicated himself to this. And that, to me, speaks volumes about the man that, that, that you're seeing. And certainly he you know, has come back and said, yes, they were, you know, he was initially wrong on the masks and they should have acted much faster. But we're dealing with a virus we haven't seen before. And I think that's one of the things we have to appreciate. Science has to catch up. Absolutely. And things are changing in many areas of science. I have Evelyn on the line from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Good evening, Evelyn. Hi. Um, I've okay. This this is this is a personal thing. With regards to the vaccine, this is this is bad this is bad luck for me all the way around. I was supposed to get my first my first dose in April. Okay, and now and now I tried getting my my dose in June and July. And I haven't gotten my doses, my first dose, all the way around. So I haven't even, I haven't even seen the second dose yet. So the situation is, is the fact that not everybody's scared about getting the vaccine. It's just a matter of, it's a matter of timing. Obviously, something, something is amiss, and somebody is not supposed to get the vaccine. I'm, I'm laughing here. This is like, you know, <laughs> the, 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 fact of the, the fact of the matter is the last one that I was supposed to get, I ended up in hospital, right? So I ended up, you know, in a situation where I had no control over it, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact of the matter is what happens to those people that are having a bad luck streak with actually getting the vaccine? See, I is, know yeah. that I've heard of... Uh, some patients who can ask for it in the hospital, but go ahead, Dr. Kinderchuk. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, 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 the beefs that I've had with all of this, is that one of the things we forget when we think about this idea of people who have not been vaccinated in Canada, we tend to say, okay, well, these are people that are hesitant or reluctant. Well, that's not necessarily true. We have people that because of you know, socioeconomic demographics, because of uh, you know, life uh, happenings, obviously, much, much like uh, Evelyn here, they, can't, they haven't been able to get vaccine doses. So we have to do better at making it accessible because the best way for us to get vaccines into people 
is to make it accessible for everybody. And we have to be able to do that in a way that's equitable, not only across the globe in our communities, but also within our own communities at home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and recently, I think she recently, oh, recently, recently they gave us the walk-in clinics. I'm wondering how yeah. well those are going to go. Yeah, just, <sighs> just recently. This is like a couple yeah. of days ago. Well, that's I great. Another walk-in... another option. Yeah, the walk-in clinics yeah. are, are going to help. Um, I mean, I would still love to see the mobile clinics because I think that that has okay. actually had a, a real power in Ontario. Maybe we'll see that here. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think just, just keep making noise and, and hopefully the, the provincial government will listen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here. My guest is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He is all things viruses. We're going to start out with a caller, Dr. Kinderchuk. I have sure. Mary, who's also calling from Winnipeg, Manitoba. We've got all the Manitobans calling tonight. Good evening, Mary. Good evening. Thanks very much. Dr. Kinderchuk, when were mRNAs first uh, introduced to the market? What are the longitudinal studies indicate in the way of concerns? Lastly, do you wish politicians would listen more to the health experts? I'm not an anti-mask or anti-vaccine, or I've had both. Oh, so a little, a little bit unpacked there. So for in terms of you know the actual uh, you know the actual rollout of of mRNA vaccines to to the public, um, you know that that has been something that's been very recent, right? So we have you know a few decades of research and certainly uh, clinical trials that uh, that were undertaken for other uh, diseases and, and other ailments. Um, but this has been really the the first time that mRNA vaccines have been approved for use. Uh, to, to any extent. And, and, you know, we haven't seen any licensed yet, but that likely is going to happen in the next couple of months through, through FDA. Longitudinal studies, everything that we have right now, uh, you know, certainly for COVID is based off of the clinical trials, which started out, you know, mid-2020, early 2020. Um, so in those phase one trials, we would have people now that are looking at about a year and a half um, out. So looking at any complications or, or any kind of long-term you know, adverse events, which we typically don't see. Uh, the, you know, severe adverse events we tend to see pretty quickly after vaccination. But then if we look back at those other prior trials for things non-COVID related, you know, we look back again on, on you know, decades of, uh, you know, of research that's been done and, and certainly some human trials that, that were done there. For, you know, in regards to, um, you know, politicians and, and whether they listen more to scientists, I, I think they are. Um, certainly, I think it, it's always good to have uh, researchers at the table, especially when it comes to science policy, um, and, and certainly to be able to, to help provide context when it's needed. Um, but I also know that uh, you know that, that politicians are good at being able to speak to the public, and scientists are not always gifted in that matter. So I think we have to have continual presentation, um, but but it certainly has to be done in a way that ultimately the public is getting the information that they need and that they uh, actually can can digest. Uh, weren't mRNAs used in other products for medicine that were consumed by people? Well, mRNA, so mRNA is something that we have, I mean, we produce in our bodies all the time, and we certainly get from our foodstuffs, but mRNA vaccines have not been uh, approved in the past. And not, it wasn't done with other medications? For mRNAs, I would have to look back to see if there have been any other mRNA products that have been approved, but certainly not for vaccines. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. 
Uh, Dr. Kendrachuk, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but across the country there is a nursing shortage. Uh, many yes. nurses after 16 months of this are exhausted. They are saddened. They are angry. They are depressed. They are. They have been working long hours. They're feeling depleted. There is a hospital in Windsor, Ontario, that's offering uh, an unprecedented $75,000 sign-on bonus for intensive care unit nurses. Um, we, we've got about a, a minute left. What's our road ahead? Since it doesn't really feel to healthcare professionals anyway that this is over, um, I know that the film industry is hopeful that uh, things are going to change and their crew won't have to be wearing masks and they're waiting. They're, I know the negotiations have been delayed, so there's certainly industries hoping. But what are you, what are your thoughts on it? How long are we in for the in on this? Well. Well, we're in for a little bit longer, right? So I think Canada, certainly things will change probably in the next few months again with, with what we're seeing, even with Delta, based on our vaccination, uh, vaccination coverage. But we've got to do a, way, a, a better job of being able to retain all of our healthcare staff, from, from physicians down through nurses, through therapists, through uh, you know, any additional uh, you know, occupational staff that are there. Because we, we need people, and I think we realize um, how incumbent our health is uh, in, in having those people uh, at, at the ready at, at all times. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Kinderchuk. It's always a pleasure to have you on to update us on the latest on COVID. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Maureen. You bet. All Bye-bye. right. Take care. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. If you have a question for me, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's one 1- 877-399-9898. You can also email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Uh, this is a health show, and uh, oftentimes uh, I want to get back to the basics, back to the cellular level, and sometimes that's through diet and nutrition. I don't mean dieting. I mean your diet and the nutrition and actually considering your nutrition as it relates to your health. And you may not think of a little-known mineral called potassium, which actually helps your cells work the correct way. It actually helps to make the electricity that allows your cells to do the jobs that they need to do. And your cells are involved in your nerves and your muscles, and that includes your heart. And your heart may not work the way that it should if you don't get enough of potassium. You may not realize that. So how much potassium do you need? So an adult needs about 4,700 milligrams of potassium potassium every day. A breastfeeding mother needs a little bit more, so about 5,100 milligrams. And, you know, there's so many things, especially as people age and, uh, you know, we're all aging every single day. We are just getting closer, God willing. <laughs> um, this is the, it's better to be looking down at the grass, uh, as the Irish say. Um, but, you know, you're, you're aging, and as you age, your bones tend to get a little bit more brittle. And, of course, the North American diet, and, and it used to be, we could say, the, the U.S. diet, but, you know, the Canadian diet is getting um, bad as well. We have lots of meat and dairy consumption, and that can cause your body to make too much acid, and that will actually perpetuate your, the, the weakness uh, of your bones. So you do need foods that are rich in potassium to actually try to prevent that. And it's mostly fruits and vegetables can slow down that process and actually helps prevent osteoporosis. And we see osteoporosis in women and men. 
uh, especially for women uh, during the menopause or the perimenopause, menopause, postmenopausal years. And then of course, uh, for men that occurs as men age, especially after the age of, you know, surprisingly enough, 40. So you have to, um, look at that. So it's very important that you eat a healthy diet. It also, this is something I'm extremely interested in because I have experienced this and I never, ever want to experience this again. I actually ended up in the hospital in the um, special care observation unit, which is the unit between a medical floor and intensive care unit because I had a kidney stone, one kidney stone that caused me so much grief. I was hospitalized for eight days. I had ECG monitoring. I needed oxygen. I was hypotensive. So I had low blood pressure. Um, I was vomiting blood. It was brutal. And kidney stones are hard little balls that are made from minerals in your urine. And trust me when I tell you, you don't want them because they really hurt. Now I have a fairly low pain threshold, (laughs) Um, but no, no, it was a killer. Um, And, and it really actually set me, set me back quite a bit. And it actually took me a month or two to recover after that. More acid in your body often because of a meat-rich diet, and I'm actually not somebody that eats a lot of meat, uh, but it actually uh, makes you more likely to get them. But because I actually had unnecessary surgery as well, I'd passed the stone, and I and I felt like they'd taken the thorn out of the lion's paw. I had actually passed it, but they they premedicated me for the operating room, and I was trying to tell them like, "Hey, I I, I need to speak to the doctor beforehand." And <laughs> anyway, it was too late. I had the surgery, and they couldn't find it, so they couldn't actually do an assessment on it. But, so what I do is drink 10 to 12 cups of water a day. Potassium helps to get rid of the acid, which keeps those minerals where they belong, and that's in your bones. And then that will help to prevent the painful stones of kidney stones. Potassium also helps your muscles work properly. So you need just the right amount of potassium in your cells and sodium outside of your cells for your muscles to actually contract properly Um, and not squeeze when you don't want them to. And something I've talked about on the show quite a bit is prevention of high blood pressure. Uh, And uh, you know how I feel about this, because when you have high blood pressure, you are at a risk of stroke. And the stroke, it happens when the blood flow is cut off to a part of your brain, or it could be limited because a blood vessel has burst or it has gotten blocked. So high blood pressure plays a role in that. So it's also very important. A good source of potassium is bananas. Another good source is potatoes. A medium potato is like a thousand milligrams. Prunes are another great source, six or 700 milligrams. Oranges is another one. Tomatoes. Um, So there's lots of great um, uh, foods for you to choose from. Check them out. Potassium, important for your diet, important for your health, uh, important for your life. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Ever notice how I bring on a doctor during Nurse Talk quite frequently? Uh, one in five Americans will develop skin cancer by the age of 70. Skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States and worldwide. According to the Skin Cancer Foundation, more than 5,400 people worldwide die of non-melanoma skin cancer every single month. Having five or more sunburns doubles your risk for melanoma. Melanoma, which is a deadly form of cancer, when detected early, the five-year survival rate is 
I'm delighted to bring on my guest. He's a clinical professor of dermatology at the University of British Columbia. He practices medical and cosmetic dermatology at Pacific Derm in Vancouver, BC, and is the developer and founder of Riversol Skincare, which I have tried and loved. He has been recognized as one of Canada's Best Doctors Award for a number of years and is the current vice president, incoming president of the Canadian Dermatology Association and president of the Acne and Rosacea Society of Canada. That is a lot of skin. Joining me on the line is Dr. Jason Rivers. Good evening, Dr. Rivers. How are you? I'm great, Maureen. Thanks for having me on tonight. Oh, I'm delighted to have you back on the program at a very critical time. The sun is shining. There's a heat wave out there. People are hitting the beach. What's the most important thing for people who are heading out there exposing their skin? Well, as you pointed out, uh, the main issue regarding the sun is that although it may feel great on the skin for a while, there are a lot of negative potential consequences. You mentioned non-melanoma skin cancer and the death associated with that. But in North America for melanoma, which uh, preferentially is occurring more in younger people now too, uh, one person dies every hour from melanoma. Oh, and wow. aside from that, you know, the sun can cause immune suppression, it can uh, activate certain sun-related uh, skin conditions like lupus, for example, and it can prematurely age the skin as well. And then you have I, a bit of pain from sunburn as well, right? So that you're uh, not enjoying your evenings. Absolutely. I, I've certainly suffered that. It just took me once. I had had a bad sunburn in Florida. <laughs> Never again. Um, wow, I did not realize that it had an impact on the immune system. Because we think of sun and we think of, especially in Canada and British Columbia in particular, and in some of the northern places where the sun doesn't shine all that much, all that long. Um, and we think of vitamin D. And, and a lot of people will think, great, I'm getting my vitamin D. I'm sitting out there. I'm not going to bother with sunscreen. How bad is that decision for people? Well, the issue about vitamin D also relates to COVID because there was some mention earlier on in the earlier days of the pandemic that vitamin mm-hmm. D was important for helping to prevent covid I think that's been debunked to some degree. It's not completely. But the issue uh, about vitamin D is that you don't need a lot of sun exposure to get your vitamin D each day. And there are also other ways to get vitamin D through supplementation or through diet. A lot of people might say, well, you can't get enough through diet. Uh, But uh, taking uh, 1,000 to 2,000 international units of vitamin D throughout the year is an inexpensive way to get your requirements. It certainly is. Um, So I did not realize having five or more sunburns doubles your risk for melanoma. Is that, you know, some people might get a sunburn on their back and then they might, you know, get it on their face. Is it kind of a sunburn in a different part of your body? That's a good point and a good question. Um, The answer is that the sunburn is basically just a marker for somebody's propensity to um, have damage from the sun, number one, and number two, uh, that they are causing injury to the skin. One sunburn in itself will, will not give you skin cancer, but certainly it increases the risk for this because you're getting not only sunburns, but you're getting a lot of intermittent sun exposure over the years as well. And <clears throat> although you can get sunburnt on your upper back, you can also develop skin cancers in areas where you don't burn considerably. So it's more of a 
a marker for somebody who's at risk for skin cancer rather than you're going to get the skin cancer where you had the sunburn. Very interesting. And is there a genetic predisposition or genetic propensity toward skin cancer? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, we know, for example, people who are redheads, they carry a, a gene defect called the uh, melanocortin receptor gene. Um, they're um, deficient in that and gives you redhead, but it also makes you sunburn more easily. And even without the red hair, having that gene can increase your risk independently for skin cancer. But there are certainly uh, familial states that will give you um, increased risk for melanoma. They're less common, but there are identified genes that increase someone's risk for having a melanoma. And in fact, other cancers as well. If somebody has a familial history of, of uh, melanoma, meaning two or more first-degree relatives who've had melanoma, other cancers are also at potentially increased risk, including pancreas cancer. Oh, that's interesting. So it's two or more relatives. It, if they had one relative that had melanoma and survived it, um, would that, uh, what risk would the child of that person have? <clears throat> well, the, the, the risk for developing uh, uh, in a familial setting, uh, as we said, is two individuals. So if your mm-hmm. father and your uncle both had uh, melanoma, your risk for getting melanoma is increased. And it's probably uh, uh, the, the lifetime risk for the average individual who doesn't have um, a familial tendency is about 1%, and it may be rising up to about 5% for people who have um, a familial tendency. Um, so it's not a what? lot, but it's, yeah. it's a lot more than the sporadic type. Than the average, yes, person. Um, So basal cell carcinoma, we hear a lot about that. That's the most common form of skin cancer. How is that detected and what should people do? And and should they be incredibly scared when they find out they have this? Well, basal cell carcinoma, as you point out, is is a very common form of skin cancer, the most common type that we see. It has different um, appearances and generally still occurs on sun-exposed areas. Uh, that is head and neck region, but it can occur on the back. It can occur on the arms and legs. Uh, is more is one of the more frequent uh, malignant tumors we see on the eyelid, in fact, because of the fact mm-hmm. of sun exposure. It appears generally as a small little bump on the skin uh, that may initially look innocuous, uh, but has then with time the tendency to crust and bleed and then heal over and repeat the cycle. Uh, It may break down so you can develop a little ulcer in the skin that doesn't heal up, and sometimes the margins become more raised, and um, if left unchecked, it can cause a lot of local tissue destruction. Uh, Very rarely does it metastasize, but that said, I do have a patient who had a small little skin cancer basal cell on the head, and it has spread to uh, lymph nodes and lungs, so it's not always innocuous, Uh, much less commonly a a problem, and most likely in the majority of people, it's not going to take anyone's life, but it should be treated because if left uh, untreated, it can, as I say, destroy a lot of tissue. Is this something we see on the ear, on the ears as well, outer aspect of the ears? Yes, we see uh, basal cell in the ears. We also see squamous cell carcinoma in the ears more frequently. And also, okay, and what uh, is... Sorry. Go ahead. Squamous Go cell ahead. carcinoma is mm-hmm. the 
another type of skin cancer, or a keratinocyte type of skin cancer. It looks like a scaly uh, red bump on the skin. Uh, it, too, can break down at times uh, uh, to cause an ulceration. It is uh, a skin cancer that's most highly correlated with sun-exposed areas of the body. So where you have sun damage is where you're going to get uh, squamous cell carcinoma. So to your point, the ears are a common site, um, the face, the neck, the back, arms, exposed areas. And also it's the most common type of skin cancer we see on the lip, uh, specifically in men, uh, more so than women, probably because a lot of women are wearing lipstick, which will give them some protection uh, from the ultraviolet light of the sun. Oh, interesting. And now can squamous cell carcinoma metastasize or spread? Yes, they certainly can do so, and uh, they can be very aggressive in, when they do that. Um, I mentioned the lip. That is an area where there is a higher tendency for squamous cell carcinoma to spread, but it can also occur uh, on other areas, for example, where people have had burns. If you've had like a thermal burn from uh, a scald when you were a kid, mm-hmm. um, 30, 40 years later, you can develop a skin cancer in that site or radiation sites, and they can be more aggressive in their behavior. Wow. Um, So if somebody has basal cell or squamous cell carcinoma, should they worry about melanoma, the deadliest form? Yes, having non-melanoma skin cancer does increase your risk for melanoma as well. Um, I mean, the good news about melanoma is that in the majority of individuals, it is detected early and is therefore highly curable. One of the concerns, though, is in uh, people of color, um, Latinos, Hispanics, especially the, in the States, the rates of melanoma are going up much, much uh, more quickly than in Caucasians, and they're diagnosed at a later state. Same thing for blacks. Um, they may not develop melanoma in the same general areas, that is, on sun-exposed skin, as Caucasians do, those are more likely to develop on the bottom of the feet, under the toenails, and mm. because they are not considered as uh, skin cancer or not thought of as, as such, they're often um, delayed in their diagnosis, and therefore the outcomes in people of color is unfortunately uh, poorer than in Caucasians. Some of that may be related to access to health, uh, but there is also just a general um, issue in terms of um, delayed diagnosis. That is such a shame. That's why I'm so grateful to have you on the program to talk about the idiosyncrasies and and other uh, issues related to it, because it's so important that people, everybody, have access to health care and that Physicians and other healthcare providers alike are aware that uh, this can occur on the feet and um, under the toenails as, uh, in um, black individuals, black people. Um, yeah, important because um, and it's if your listeners, you know, take that to heart and they start looking at themselves, then they can at least advise somebody to take a look at them so that they initiate the process and they're not waiting until, you know, it's an obvious problem before something is done to help them. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Dr. Jason Rivers, dermatologist extraordinaire, is my guest. And we are talking sun exposure and skin damage. And and Dr. Rivers, thanks for staying on the line. Uh, According to the Skin 
Foundation website, an estimated 90% of skin aging is caused by the sun. Is that true? That is very true. We uh, have uh, intrinsic and extrinsic aging mechanisms on the skin. Intrinsic is look at your parents and see what happens. And extrinsic is uh, see what happens when you look at the outside of your arm and compare it to the inside of your arm. And you'll see the difference in terms of the color of the skin, whether it's blotchy. If you run your hand up it, you'll see it's rough compared to smooth on the inside. And uh, the texture is better, more elastic, more rebound on the inside of your arm where it's sun protected versus on the outside. So true. As I look at my own arm, (laughs) I'm fairly pale. Um, I try not to go into the, into the sun. And even though I love the outdoors, I love the beach. I love paddle boarding. I love biking. um, But um, I do wear sunscreen daily. But what is the correct SPF? Of uh, that we should be wearing? Well, the first thing is um, the correct SPF is going to be related to the sunscreen that you're going to put on your skin. If you don't use it, and you know the story of people who have a bottle of sunscreen that's been sitting in the glove box of their car for three years, um, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. Um, the issue about sunscreens is that sunscreens have to be applied appropriately to get the SPF or sun protective factor that's on the the bottle. Most dermatologists would say to you today that the minimum SPF that should be used is an SPF 30 and that the sunscreen should be labeled as broad spectrum, meaning it covers both UVB and UVA Mm -hmm. uh, rays of the sun. Um, Some people will say, however, though, and there's studies that show, you know, the higher you go with the SPF, the more protection you get. The factor is, though, that most people, if you have an SPF of about 30 on a bottle, most people will put on about a quarter to half the amount that they're supposed to put on, Mm -hmm. and that reduces the value of your SPF rating considerably. So you may be putting on an SPF 30, but if you don't put it on properly, you may be only getting an SPF value of 2 to 4. Um, so this is, in essence, why some people will say, you know, I put on a sunscreen, I can still burn. Or I put on a sunscreen, and I still burn. Right. They don't put on enough. Um, literally, oh. if you were to go to a nudist beach and you want to put sunscreen over your whole body, you need to use 30 mils uh, of sunscreen, um, which is about an ounce, to um, cover your whole body. And when you think that a lot of sunscreen bottles may only contain 120 mils, right. that means four full applications um, out of a bottle. So people exactly. aren't using it as much as they should be. But it is just a got good, about a, Oh, go ahead. It, it is a good adjuvant, adjuvant to other treatments. So, I mean, prevention, I think. So clothing is important. Shade is important. Hats, uh, broad-brimmed hats and sunglasses are important, too. Right. And I just want to mention, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I want to mention your amazing, and I've used them. I, it was a gift and I loved it. <laughs> One of my favorite gifts, Riversol. Um, yeah. I've used the moisturizer, but I, I see you now have a weightless body sunscreen and uh, lightweight, broad spectrum sunscreen. Uh, yeah. Where can people get those? Why did you develop them quickly? And um, There are, are physical sunscreens, so they don't contain chemicals that can be born, uh, absorbed into the body. They're reef safe. Uh, you can get it online at uh, riversol.com. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rivers. Great information. Really appreciate you coming on the program. My pleasure, Marie. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.